All right. Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series and Podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be hosting this discussion today. We're pleased to have Joseph Sabag, Executive Director of IAC for Action, the 501c4 sister organization of the Israeli American Council, join us to discuss fighting BDS, one American state at a time. Mr. Sabag will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Joseph Sabag. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for welcoming me today. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to address this forum. I've had an interesting uh, relationship with MEF over the years. I first came in contact with Dr. Daniel Pipes as a law student just over 20 years ago, as we were confronting a variety of radical speakers who were making their way to campus. It was also an interesting opportunity to contrast what some of the newer, more active orgs were doing, uh, as opposed to some of the legacy organizations um, that I was in conversation with at the time. Um, as mentioned, I'm the director of IAC for Action. We are a 501c4 that operates alongside the uh, Israeli American Council. And I've had uh, a very interesting ride over the years that I was asked to uh, share a bit about with uh, with your group. I think overall, my experience as uh, a professional activist is a testament to the fact that, uh, you know, everyday people uh, can certainly choose to engage, bring creative ideas to the table, uh, innovate, and ultimately make a difference, even despite the fact that, you know, older uh, legacy institutions, um, you know, may not may, may not welcome that kind of uh, change. Um, I started uh, briefly um, to mention how I've, I came into this field, I started my career as special counsel and speechwriter for a very important legislator uh, in Florida. That was House Majority Leader Adam Hasner, who uh, early on recognized um, you know, not only the importance of state-based uh, engagement on issues of, uh, of foreign affairs, but also uh, recognized the challenges that we face in terms of the relationship between radical Islam and uh, increasingly challenges that were coming from the left. So uh, I entered his office as special counsel when he and Speaker Marco Rubio uh, chose to make Florida the first state in the country to divest from Iran. That was an interesting experience that revealed uh, Two, two significant and rather revolutionary developments. Um, the first is what we saw was the emergence of a policymaking model that we refer to as trickle up. Um, it's the idea that enough states can join together in creating uh, an expression of policy that they can ripen an issue, define the response to that issue, and then put the Congress in a position where they have to uh, in turn react um, in a way that's consistent with the states themselves. Secondly, what we also saw was um, certainly uh, we saw the emergence of pro-Israel Christians um, on a mass scale and an organized basis into the policymaking space. And so um, as the Florida-Iran divestment bill began to circulate around the country, that opened up opportunities to engage with new communities that, quite frankly, had never really been um, you know, showing a heavy presence in the advocacy space. Um, Eventually, I made my way to Washington, D.C. In 2014, I was handed the keys to a congressional caucus that was the Congressional Israel Allies Caucus, and uh, a variety of concerns were immediately presented. 
One of our co-chairs was Mike Pence. Um, we had, uh, I believe at, at that time, 92 members in the caucus. A lot of concerns emerged about the BDS movement itself um, emerging as a threat, particularly that it would be used as a point of leverage um, uh, by the Obama administration, more specifically John Kerry as he became the Secretary of State in order to try and corner Israel and to force concessions upon Israel. Now, I know um, MEF has been very active in the Israel victory uh, concept, you know, which is certainly something that uh, I think myself and, and many of the folks that I represent uh, subscribe to. It's, uh, you know, in essence, uh, a peace through strength iteration. Um, but BDS, you know, in 2012, 2013, you know, posed a much bigger threat than it does at this point, simply because of a lack of response by the Israeli government, and certainly the fact that U.S. laws were not really equipped to deal with this threat either. Generally, the state of play at that time was uh, tracing back to the mid-1970s when the U.S. had the Export Administration Act and other points of law that primarily focused on boycotts of Israel that were driven by, um, uh, by states themselves, um, state-sponsored boycotts. We understand that part of what happened specifically at the UN Durban conference in the early 2000s was the decentralization of these boycotts, and they were then placed in the hands of NGOs, most of which have some measure of coordination that traces back to the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah. And that, of course, was part of a, uh, a major report that was issued, um, I think called uh, terrorists in suits. And then there was another report called Behind the Mask for those who are interested in checking that out. So we understood, you know, clearly that something would have to be done and that Congress itself, you know, was um, at that time in a state of gridlock. And certainly there were very little prospects of creating policy that President Obama himself would sign off on, even if we could get through the Congress. And we recognized that once again, this trickle up, this trickle up model at the state level would um, would be what was necessary. So along with uh, a lead academic partner, Professor Eugene Kontorovich uh, in Israel, and then a leading state legislator in South Carolina named Alan Clemens, we innovated a contracting model that many of you hopefully have seen um, tested in the federal circuits and perhaps noticed that about three and a half weeks ago, a very high level ruling came out of the Eighth Circuit and upheld the constitutionality of these laws in the face of challenges issued by, by the ACLU. So we created this contracting model. And at the same time, uh, the, the divestment model was recycled and applied to, uh, to BDS. That happened in Illinois. That was the initiative of Rich Goldberg. Uh, and ultimately, we recognized that there were merits and uh, a different sort of effectiveness to each one of those models. Um, the contracting model, just in terms of its enforcement uh, would ultimately impact revenue streams of a company that chose to boycott Israel. Uh, and then the divestment model, you know, would ultimately impact share pricing, as we've seen demonstrated in the cases of Airbnb and, um, and more, much more recently, Ben and Jerry's Unilever. Florida uh, immediately became the first state to make use of both contracting and divestment. And from there, we hit uh, a very quick curve. Um, it became clear that state legislators themselves, first of all, had a very strong interest in economic protectionism. They want to make sure that as they open lines of trade and as their state-based businesses 
begin to operate with Israeli trade partners, that they're defending exports and jobs based in their own states. A fabulous example of this was the support that we received from Lockheed Martin, uh, um, knowing that they were partnering with Israel uh, in, in the creation of the F-35 fighter jets, um, and that certainly they really didn't want interference as they go about their business um, you know, within the states. So we're at the point now where 36 states have ultimately taken on um, you know, either both contracting and divestment or uh, one or the other components. Eventually, um, as I mentioned, the ACLU stepped into the mix and there was a certain hypocrisy to the challenges that they began to issue. They suggest that private persons have uh, a First Amendment free speech right to engage in commercial discrimination on the basis of national uh, origin. That's the, uh, the essence of the argument that they are uh, laying out. And we see the double standard in the case of Israel because we know that in the years preceding, they argued that uh, Christian Baker, for example, had no private First Amendment free speech right to engage in commercial discrimination against a gay couple that would walk through the door on the basis of their sexual orientation. So, you know, clearly we, we saw um, the ACLU begin to take shape as, you know, what I, I think unfortunately is, you know, pretty much the official de facto law firm for anti-Semitism in the United States and the overlap between people directing their, anti, their, their BDS efforts, uh, primarily with the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2020 was a very striking thing for us to see. Most of those cases were mooted before they were able to proceed to trial. Nevertheless, the ACLU really likes to tout some of the injunctions that they were able to obtain as being the equivalent of merits-based rulings, which we know they're not. So there's been a high level of dissimula dissimulation and dishonesty. But ultimately, uh, as I mentioned, the, the Eighth Circuit just a few weeks ago uh, issued a ruling in a case called Arkansas Times versus Waldrip, which I think symbolically speaking, the essence of that ruling is the paint drying on this nexus of laws that we've created. One big compliment that was issued along the way, um, I was in a meeting um, at the White House where uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu a few years ago referred to this nexus of state laws as the economic iron dome, which I think is a very you know, appropriate way of, of conceptualizing the function of these laws. Because in essence, that's what they're doing is um, is just creating a protective atmosphere for trade and relations to be conducted without outside interference. And definitely the benefits have been there for the states that have taken a strong stance. I had the opportunity to do some of the planning with Governor DeSantis's trade mission when he first took office here in Florida. And one of the striking data points that he was able to share was that from 2016 to mid 2018, um, that was the interim period where Florida enacted and then began to, to, uh, to implement its anti-BDS law. There was almost a 30% increase in, uh, in bilateral trade between the state of Florida and Israel. And then we saw a similar figure, 29% being reported by Governor Ducey from Arizona as he conducted a trade mission and the state of Arizona opened up a trade office in Arizona. So the benefits clearly are there and businesses that are looking to operate without this kind of outside interference understand that there are certain states that have better protections that make more sense to domesticate. <clears throat> I know we're gonna open up for questions in a moment. Um, so I guess um, 
you know, and I'm, I'm certain everybody's familiar at this point with the Unilever Ben and Jerry's victory that happened a few weeks ago, which certainly demonstrates the efficacy of these laws. Um, you know, we saw that um, in the case of Unilever, if you just take a look at their share pricing from the day that Ben and Jerry's announced their boycott policy until the day that Unilever announced they were overriding that policy just two and a half weeks ago, uh, you watched Unilever lose somewhere in the neighborhood of about $25 billion worth of market capitalization. And so, you know, clearly we saw that the seven states that took divestment action definitely impacted um, definitely impacted the share pricing of this company. And we also know that to be the case because Ben & Jerry's in turn sued Unilever trying to seek an injunction to stop their sale of their Middle East Ben & Jerry's license directly to the licensee who was at the center of that case. And Unilever had a lot to say in their response to Ben & Jerry's filing about the pressure that they were facing stemming from state action. So we know that the Iron Dome is here to stay, and we know that it's up and running. And this is a fab fabulous victory for people who support the U.S.-Israel relationship. And, you know, um, and in general, you know, we're, we should all be really satisfied with what we've, what we've seen happen here. To talk a little bit about some of the opposition that was faced, it was very important early on to, to get some momentum, and it was not an easy thing to do in the face of a lot of the uh, the bigger legacy pro-Israel orgs that either opposed this sort of legislation, a good example of that would be an op-ed that Abe Foxman published in June of 2015 uh, in the JTA, trying to suggest that there were free speech problems with our model, despite the fact that we, you know, strongly felt that there weren't. Um, and then, you know, uh, a certain territorialism. I think one dynamic that I've had a front row seat to observe is the fact that a lot of the productivity in, in the policy space, certainly in terms of, of US-Israel affairs, is coming from orgs that are really only 15 to 20 years old. I think a lot of that is a testament to some of the ineffectiveness of the 20th century orgs that have not done a very good job of evolving to meet 21st century uh, challenges. And then likewise, the fragmentation of the community in general is also a tremendous problem. You had roughly, I don't know, I, you know, 70 different orgs that have one thing or another to say about BDS, certainly that are out there trying to fundraise on the issue. Um, so, you know, the, the fragmentation, the territorialism, and, you know, frankly, the, the stubbornness of some of the, the older orgs to, to innovate and, and to adapt to new challenges definitely made things a bit harder along the way. And I would say, you know, frankly, represented about 75% of the opposition that was faced really only 25% of, of the legislative opposition that we faced was stemming from groups that are directly supportive and engaged in BDS. So just to kind of close out here, um, you know, uh, big picture here and, and kind of the moral of the story, I think that we've done a fairly good job of treating a symptom in this case, you know, which is anti-Semitism in as much as it manifests as commercial discrimination and, and condo. But you know, I've been able to observe, you know, that the, the real root of the problem here is the, the myth of occupation. It's the suggestion that the state of Israel is an occupier, which we have to understand is merely just a casual way of trying to portray Israel as being a colonialist thief. Um, you know, and there were significant gains made, uh, particularly um, due to the good work of Secretary of State Pompeo, who changed the legal posture of the U.S. State Department 
to assert the fact that Israel is not, in fact, a legal occupier. And we should take note that just two days from now, we're celebrating you know, the 100th anniversary of uh, a very important point of international law, which was the implementation of the San Remo Resolution um, by, the, by the League of Nations and its, um, and its codification by the US Congress. Um, and you know, which resulted in you know a U.S. president signing off in recognition that San Remo is in fact the binding point of uh, policy uh, in terms of Israel's territorial rights and establishing the legality of Israel's present borders, including um, you know the biblical heartland, Judea, Samaria, and Eastern Jerusalem. So, you know, um, I think that we've been pretty good in dealing with one specific public policy challenge, but the broader cultural war is really going to revolve around the ability of our community to deal with this, this myth of occupation. It's a common denominator that we hear all the way from college professors to BDS activists who are using forms of, of uh, economic warfare, and certainly even mass murderers and people strapping suicide vests on are looking into the camera and they're talking about resistance to occupation. So I think that we're going to have ongoing problems and face, you know, these types of attacks until the narrative begins to change, which I think is the great calling of, you know, the, the current generation of pro-Israel activists is to become educated regarding points of law and historical fact that support, you know, the recognition of uh, the Pompeo doctrine uh, and certainly moving, you know, all of, of U.S. government into, uh, into a position that's consistent with that. We have to begin re rejecting the occupation narrative, and that just really brings us back, you know, to where this becomes a cultural dynamic, and you know, uh, you know, the culture war and wokeism and cancel culture, and everything comes into the mix. So that's the the brief 15 minute uh, recap of you know, kind of the the journey that I've uh, traveled here is just uh, you know an everyday person who, you know, just kept moving deeper and deeper into policy activism. I'm really happy to interact with this audience and take some questions and um, hopefully provide some satisfying answers. And you know, to the extent that I can motivate you guys also to, to step up your own activism, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for welcoming me. Thank you so much for that. Uh, we have quite a few questions. Joel Levine asks, have there been any attempts to prosecute proponents of BDS under the hate crime statutes? So um, first of all, when we talk about regulating BDS, we're regulating BDS as commercial conduct. Now, the next step naturally is going to be to begin regulating anti-Semitism as it manifests as criminal or unlawful discriminatory conduct, which is a separate category. And this is where we begin examining the role of the IHRA definition and its increasing importance in resolving an equal protection problem. Most of the states right now are lacking a uniform definition of anti-Semitism. Um, the importance of IHRA is that it helps to expose national origin-driven anti-Semitism, which we would say is much more of the contemporary style as opposed to religious-based anti-Semitism, which is more of the classic style, um, you know. So, yeah, I didn't discuss it very much, but um, IAC for Action is the only org that at this point has managed to have the IHRA definition codified for regulatory use. Um, that's something that succeeded in Arizona, 
Iowa and Tennessee this last cycle. Florida's also codified it and South Carolina became the first to codify it in 2018. So just to answer Joel's question, the codification of the IHRA definition is one of the extreme priorities of the Jewish community in the next couple of years and making certain that state investigators who have to uh, who have to investigate crime or unlawful discriminatory conduct have an accurate uh, definition that doesn't allow the other side to dissimulate and to suggest that they were merely protesting Israeli policies where we know that they were simply using uh, pretexts, um, you know, in order to target Jewish victims on, on you know, on a particular basis. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, JL asks, do you think that mainstream and establishment established uh, Jewish organizations have been relatively silent regarding BDS due to the fact that they tend to lean left and BDS is primarily a le left-leaning movement? So um, I, I want to say that some of the orgs um, that lean left still nevertheless have been very much a part of the solution and not the problem. I think the best way to gauge where orgs stand on this would in fact be to take a look at the amicus brief filings in the Arkansas Times versus Waldrip case and taking a look at what they have to say, I think you'll get a much better sense of who falls on which side of that line. Um, you know, I mentioned, you know, what was early on probably one of the biggest problems and that was opposition that was faced from the ADL, which certainly did not do uh, a very good job on this issue for you know quite a quite a long time but we can see that even they've now moved into position based on things that they've said when we saw the resolution of the the Unilever Ben and Jerry's case so i i think on the BDS issue there was enough popular uh, sentiment in support of this that the professional staff of many of these orgs ultimately were not able to control the issue and they had to bend to the will of the community. But I think IHRA is a different story. And I think that that's where we're going to begin to see um, orgs staking out different positions, some of which may be very upsetting to Jewish victims of anti-Semitism. And that's where their, their partisan calculus might come much more into play. And it'll be a question of whether IHRA ought to be implemented for regulatory use, whether it should just be embraced as kind of a symbolic standard. And that's what's coming down the pike. And it's, you know, you know, probably uh, something that'll spill over into public view in the next year to two. Thank you. David Levinas, isn't it significant that while Florida ended the BDS operation uh, by legislation, New York did it because Como's executive action, which can be undone just as easily? Uh, could you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, we would always prefer legislative codification over executive action, but there are just certain instances where legislatures themselves may not be ripe to take that action, and the executive order is better than nothing. So in the case of New York, um, there was a lot of political turmoil going on. There was, uh, there was a, a serious impeachment uh, scandal that was happening in their state Senate, um, and you know, one of the big concerns also with legislation is that you want the end product, you know, what you enter into the legislative process, you want it to come out in a fundamentally sound uh, form at the end of that process. So, you know, one important thing to consider about, you know, 34 out of the 36 state anti-BDS laws, they apply to Israeli controlled territories. That's a remarkable thing when you look at states like Michigan, Rhode Island, and Minnesota, and you know, stop to realize that you know, purplish states that you know oftentimes can lean blue 
have not only protected uh, Israel from boycotts, but they've provided it to Israeli controlled territories in addition to within the Green Line. So in states where you see those executive orders, I can just say ultimately it boiled down to that being the best route to achieve our regulatory goals. Um, and you know those things primarily happened in states where we just didn't have a good shot at legislating or where we weren't confident that you would have a satisfying you know, proper legislative product at the end of that process. Still muted. All right. An anonymous attendee asks, uh, what is the picture in the remaining 14 states? Is there hope for increasing the current number of the 36? Uh, I think that we've reached the point uh, where the law of diminishing returns uh, kicks in. I think there are some states where it makes no sense in trying. So, you know, Washington, Oregon, Vermont, uh, and those types of states. Um, you know, I can think of two states that will take on these laws uh, in the next cycle, but I, I think that we've reached, I think we've reached the point of diminishing returns. And, you know, we also have to keep in mind that, um, you know, we were, we were legislating very heavily early on, and then eventually had to start dedicating a significant amount of resources to litigating. And as you've seen in the last year, we had to dedicate a lot of our bandwidth to enforcement as well. So, you know, it all has, it all has to be measured out in terms of the, the workload that we can handle. And those remaining states also, I would say, um, they're smaller states in terms of the amount of trade uh, conducted with Israel. The larger state economies and the states that enjoy the most trade with Israel have already taken on these laws. So we've just run into the law of diminishing returns here. Thank you. Uh, so you did speak about uh, the myth of occupation. Uh, Don Habibi makes a, a fair point here. A major part of the damage done by BDS is that they keep up the negative branding of Israel. Why not remind the public of the Nazi campaign, Kafnich bin Juden, since during the early days of the Nazi regime, they pushed for boycotts of Jewish business. Uh, he believes that that would be a negative branding effect for the BDS movement. Can you comment? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, certainly that's a part of the talking points that we share. And the, Im the imagery is very striking. I, I do think that it's, um, it's certainly a comparison that is legitimate, um, you know, but just realize that, you know, what, what my organization is doing is really staying within the public policy lane, which our feeling is if we're going to contend with this broader cultural war that's surrounding us and you know, have prospects for victory, the starting point for that is just making sure that we're prevailing in the public policy space. The cultural war is something much more vast. I think that there are many points of uh, failure, unfortunately. I think that the Israeli government itself often is not making its own best case and fails to take the, the kind of stance, um, certainly, you know, with, with hard truths um, that we would like to see them take. So, you know, um, definitely in the course of our policy advocacy, we point that out, but I would say that um, that's much more of a, a dynamic within, you know, the cultural narrative war, as opposed to the public policy space where, I, where I'm working. Absolutely understood. Uh, so you did mention on that point that in 2012 and 2013, BDS was a bigger threat for Israel. What steps have they taken that have made it a less threat now? 
Well, you've seen at this point, first of all, not just the implementation of these laws, but there was an educational effort that corresponded to that as we went you know, about the process of advocating the passage of these laws uh, in all these states. So um, I think you know, in the course of creating these laws, we wanted to likewise examine the nature of trade that states have going on with Israel, because frankly, we're not talking about lima beans here. We're talking about water uh, technology. We're talking about pharmaceuticals and health sciences, all aspects of defense. We're talking about disaster relief and agriculture. So the states themselves, and if you look at the legislative records, you can see that the legislators in particular understand their trade with Israel as being something that has a significant impact on quality of life and, you know, and that it amounts to being a compelling state interest. So um, you know, the, the understanding of the importance of trade with Israel among policymakers at this point is much, much greater than it was just, um, just 10 years ago. And, um, you know, I, I, I would say that, you know, in general, the Israeli government itself, you know, also eventually in 2016 rolled out its own corresponding government ministry, um, uh, that was headed by Na uh, Israel's now UN ambassador, Gilad Erdan. That's their strategic affairs ministry. And so they saw the success of what was happening here in the United States and realized that they needed to become much more confrontational of this issue and to expand the, the, the battle on a global scale. We know that there are a lot of problems stemming, particularly in Northern Europe. Um, so the Israeli government, in terms of BDS, has done much more. They likewise passed the law barring BDS activists from entering Israel, which they've sometimes enforced. So the level of information um, among policymakers has, has significantly increased in the last 10 years. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, so before we go, can you tell our viewers how, how they can help, how they can interact and, and tell their, their legislators what they want? So, um, you know, we should always make sure that we're reaching out to say thank you when we see good outcomes happening. Um, you know, there are quite a few states, I, I won't list them off right now, but where we saw um, enforcement actions happen in the case of Unilever and Ben and & Jerry's, I think that right now that's the order of the day. Um, we want to take a look at the record and see which policymakers were outspoken. Um, and which statewide uh, uh, financial officials actually move their states um, into uh, a, a, an enforcement action. Um, and we want to make a lot of, honestly, um, the Unilever case right now um, is very important, not just in terms of the efficacy of these laws, but also sending a message to the broader market. So, I, you know, I, I know it's kind of odd, but like I, you know, I, I, I compare this to when King David cut the head off of Goliath. It's not enough just to chop somebody's head off. You got to hold it up for the whole world to see and to send a message to everybody else who might think to step up and try and, you know, create such problems. So for us right now, we really want to make a lot of noise about Unilever and to celebrate, uh, you know, the fact that Ben and Jerry's um, has been overridden by its parent corporation so that no other companies choose to find themselves uh, in Unilever's position. Um, that right now is extremely important. So to the extent that we're thanking lawmakers who made these laws and financial officials who enforce these laws, we got to make a lot of noise. And I think that that's, you know, um, just as, as, as Ben and Jerry's and Unilever are still struggling between themselves, this is a very important time right now to send that positive message of reinforcement.
Thank you so much. And can you just tell, tell our viewers where we can find some more of your work? Uh, so I'm pretty easy to contact. Um, you can find me at jsabag, S-A-B-A-G, at iacforaction.org. Um, you know, we have, uh, we have a website, but certainly, you know, I'm happy to, uh, to receive bright ideas from folks who may be seeing things out there uh, that we're not necessarily hearing about in our office. Um, again, it's jsabag at iacforaction.org. And I'm happy to hear from anybody who has some thoughts to share. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Mr. Sabag, for joining us today. My pleasure. Shabbat shalom, everybody. Same to you. Uh, for our viewers, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings email coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.